0: Ten years ago, I battled with opioid addiction terribly. I sold my dad's guns, I mean, just uh, to get okay. through two weeks, and it, it was just a terrible life.
1: I respect their right to protest, but this is an unlawful blockade, and the Canadian government's got to do whatever they can to swiftly and safely resolve this and get it away from the bridge. H- how and much just-
2: did you pay for that first ticket, do you remember?
3: $12. The tickets were 12 8
2: and 6 it's Twelve, 12 uh, so you went you went you went for bust, huh? You went for the good seats.
4: You're listening to Pod Sui, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Ever changing situation at the US Canadian border as a judge granted an injunction against truckers blocking the Ambassador Bridge in protests of Canada's trucker vaccine mandate. Governor Gretchen Whitmer weighed in on the blockade with Paul W. Smith on Friday morning.
1: Even in, in the first moments of this illegal blockade, we started to feel the economic um, fallout from it. You know, 10,000 vehicles go across the Ambassador Bridge every day. It's the largest land border crossing in North America. 325 million dollars worth of goods daily and so this illegal blockade is bringing our economy to its knees and putting a lot of folks out of work and going to create huge business losses and this is um you know i respect their right to protest but this is an unlawful blockade and The Canadian government's got to do whatever they can to swiftly and safely resolve this and get it away from the bridge. They can continue their negotiations, but blocking this bridge is something that's costing so many so much.
5: you agree with – we had uh, Matthew Maroon on, the the owners of the bridge we had Matthew on earlier in the week, and he thinks uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has uh, basically three options – He can either end Canada's COVID vaccine mandate for truck drivers after the vast majority of them uh, already have gotten inoculated against the virus. He can order law enforcement agencies to start towing vehicles and arresting the protesters who have blocked access to the Maroon family-owned Ambassador Bridge, causing those slowdowns in manufacturings on both sides of the Detroit River. And the third option, Matthew Maroon said, is to do nothing and hope it goes away. It, It appears... What do you think? It appears he's doing nothing right now.
1: Well, doing nothing not an option. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose that that is a, a third possibility. But the devastation that is already happening as a result of this illegal blockade is hurting so many working families across our region. But certainly, you know, across our state, thousands of people are out of work today because the parts aren't coming to our, you know, our big manufacturers like GM and Ford. And so, this is going to have an incredible impact. And so I'm not going to weigh in on the, you know, the mandates. We haven't had a mandate, as you pointed out, since June 17th of last year. Um, You know, whatever it takes, they've got to safely and swiftly, you know, resolve this illegal blockade.
5: We do. And uh, and uh, you've offered to help in any way, uh, including every way. Uh, I just think it'd be a real mess if we start to bring people in there to try to start towing these trucks off the road or getting them out of there. What a mess that would be. and uh, And frankly, it would fuel some fire that we don't want to see.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's why I keep using two words, swift, because... Every minute this goes on is hurting Michigan agriculture, Michigan business, Michigan families. It's, it's money out of people's pockets. And um, so swift and safe. You know, we can't afford to let this escalate. It's, they've got to de-escalate and, and move quickly here. And so, you know, I, I've said if there's a role for us to play, let tell me what it is. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep pushing on the Canadian government and on the U.S. government to do everything they can to to resolve this and get this illegal blockade at least away from the bridge.
5: Do you know Prime Minister Justin Trudeau very
1: well? I don't. I don't.
5: No? Uh, Again, going back to Matthew Maroon, uh, chairman of the Detroit International Bridge Company, uh, he cites that the Canadian Trucking Alliance estimates that 90% of Canada's 300,000 commercial truck drivers are already vaccinated. Uh, I mean, come on in the, the mandate, you got 90 percent of them already vaccinated. I I don't I don't understand what Trudeau is doing or why he's doing it. And uh, this thing is just it's a powder keg. It's just not good. He's, it, people are being heard. On... I
1: think there's a lot of questions, too, right, because, you know, the. million of that 325 that comes across back and forth on that bridge every day is in the auto sector. And so a lot of these truckers are employed by an industry that they're bringing to its knees right now. So I think that there are a lot of legitimate, you know, questions about the rationale here. Uh, But I'm, you know, I'm not going to play pundit. I'm just telling them, get it solved and get this bridge open.
5: Here, let me play pundit then. Here's the thing. (laughs) I agree with them being angry, but this is not the way to fix the problem by by causing so much suffering by so many people who have nothing to do with the issue. And if there's one nurse that can't make it over here, because we we have so many nurses coming from Canada to work here, uh, specifically in, in the United States and specifically Detroit and Michigan. If we have one loved one who can't make it to go visit a dying relative. I mean, that's it for me. That's that's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. And I've, I've tried to express that in any way that I possibly can. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. This is a way to ruin their reputations by hurting so many other people with their problem. People that have nothing to do with their problem. That's all. It, it, it makes me angry. I, whatever. Whatever.
4: Jennifer and James Crumbly were back in an Oakland County courtroom this week for preliminary exams. The hearings focused on the Crumbly's relationship with their son, Ethan, the accused Oxford High School shooter, took a look at the school's role in possibly intervening and painted a picture of a family and marriage in crisis. Senior news analyst Marie Osborne gets us up to speed on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz.
6: For the first time, we were able to hear the 911 call James Crumley made to police after he rushed home on November 30th, having learned there had been an active shooter At the Oxford High School, he frantically told the operator that his gun was missing and that he had just been at the school to meet with his son's counselors. James and Jennifer Crumley had been at the school that morning after a teacher discovered disturbing drawings on their son's classwork. The parents and Ethan Crumley met with a school counselor. Ethan was allowed to return to class. That meeting lasted just 13 minutes. And according to testimony, Jennifer Crumley texted copies of those drawings to three people. Less than two two hours later, their son allegedly carried out that shooting. Now, about Ethan's text messages, months prior to getting this gun on November 26th, allegedly of his own, prosecutors showed that Ethan had access to a handgun and had allegedly talked about shooting up a school. Oakland County Sheriff's Detective Edward Wagrowski said Ethan visited an unnamed website that dealt with school shootings more than 400 times in November of 2021. Wagrowski also testified about the number of phones the Crumleys had at the time of their arrest.
7: Jennifer Crumley, there were four total cell phones that were recovered that were The first one the, there was a search warrant served on their house. Um, shortly a- after the shooting, um, and their phones were seized then. Uh, then we discovered after the investigation that they went and purchased the exact same cell phones and then also um, two phones, two track phones.
6: A uh, track phones are like burner phones. Now, Kira, uh, Kira Pennock is the owner of a Metamora horse farm. She testified that Jennifer and James Crumley had two horses at the farms and that Jennifer had become a friend and Kevin and Tom in a text message after the shooting, Jennifer told Pennock, my son ruined so many lives today.
8: Yeah, this was so, so interesting, Marie. Uh, and uh, the, the, You know, you talk about uh, keeping an eye on what your kids are doing online. The fact that 400 times you went to a website that deals with shootings, uh, uh, very concerning. I thought it was interesting um, that Jennifer had had texted that photo to three different people. I was watching the testimony of her boss when she sent it to her boss and said, hey, I'm going to be late or I'm going to be late back to the office. This is what I'm dealing with. And then sent that photo uh, to the boss. I I just I I don't know If, if I had gotten that photo from my kid's school, I I, I don't think I'd be texting it to my boss. I think I'd, I think I would have brought my kid home and taken him to seeing somebody.
6: Absolutely. I had the same exact sentiment, Kevin. Uh, And she texted it to three people, including the, the woman who owned that horse farm. She also got a copy, and yeah. she was asked, well, what did you think of that? And she says, well, I was pretty alarmed by that uh, dis- a drawing. So, yeah, it was kind of strange that she would text this to other people, almost uh, asking for, I-, I don't know, help? I don't know. It, it was kind of unclear why what her motivation was in, in sending out those text messages. Um, and yes, she d- and she also told her boss at the time yes uh, the school wants me to get counseling for my son so she was aware that this was what you know the school wanted her to do
9: yeah and she also even after the shooting is she the she apparently wanted to go back to work you know she wanted to continue after these four people were killed by allegedly by her son Thought, listen, I need to come back to work uh, for a few days, at least half a day, that type of thing. Why don't I come on back? And they're kind of like, no, 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 you clearly need some time. This is a really big deal. That, that, to me, uh, seemed a bit odd.
6: Yeah, like um, clueless, I guess, is the word that, you know, you might want to use kind of a street terminology. But, yeah, that's what it seemed like. But she asked, she did say to her boss earlier on that same thread, Tom, she did say, I can't lose this job. So maybe she was deeply concerned about losing. Obviously, she was deeply concerned about losing her job. And by the way, her husband, uh, James Crumley, left that school meeting that day and went to his job he was a DoorDash delivery driver and he went right from the school to DoorDash to pick up you know his deliveries i guess for that day so the parents both really went back to work after all that um it you know it's hard not to say wow i don't know that i would have done that you know it just uh, it seemed so much more serious than it appeared they were taking it
8: well, they the family apparently I, I was in a financial dilemma, and and when you can't when your cr- finances are crumbling, uh, you you try and get your finances going so that you don't lose the house, so more things don't happen. So I, I don't overly judge them on, on on going back to work, I guess. But what was interesting to me was the text messages between the mom and the dad where it seemed like nobody was really parenting you know there's these texts about how the kid felt like he was seeing ghosts in the house and things were being moved and and the the wife texts to the husband well you know what's going on and, and the dad says I don't know maybe he was drinking yesterday and and then they talk about getting him to sleep and well did you give him some Xanax and no I gave him some melatoma there was it was like nobody was it, I got this feeling that nobody was really raising this kid nobody was was present
6: was really focusing on this uh, child and also that they didn't take seriously what was going on Uh, the pictures as an example the ones he drew um, the the hearing of voices he apparently had uh, hurt animals which you know as many of us know that is a clear sign of uh, deep psychological problems Um, they apparently knew this but could not you know they just didn't react to them the way most people would have most parents would have even just one of those things and they had a whole constellation of these types of things with this with this child
4: the justice department is considering opening safe injection sites for opioid addicts the goal of the site is to allow addicts to use in a controlled environment without the risk of overdosing on drugs laced with fentanyl while receiving counseling Guy Gordon took phone calls from people whose lives have been touched by opioid addiction after talking to president and CEO of Oakland Family Services, Jamie Clayton.
7: Look, the the idea here is this. We we know that opioid addiction and overdoses are a public health threat. Five years ago, this time of year, I went to the the memorial service for a 21-year-old girl who on the first time, why she tried it, we still don't know. But on the first time she tried heroin, it was loaded with fentanyl and it killed her. Her family was devastated. Everyone that knows the family was devastated. It's, uh, she was. She was a friend of my my youngest sons. They were tennis partners, and we couldn't have been more shocked that she would do something like that. Um, this wouldn't have helped someone like her. But for those that fall into the grip of addiction, it will allow them a safe place. And the most important thing is you do get that opportunity to intervene and offer them treatment. As you heard Jamie say, and I said, she's got much deeper experience than any of us with this. She is the expert among experts. That by the time you get to that stage, you don't want to be on heroin anymore, but you don't want to die either. So there's a reason for these. But there is a concern, as she acknowledged, that some might perceive this as enabling. Or as an, not an endorsement, but condoning. You're destigmatizing it. You're normalizing it. But again, it, the users, they're not going to see it that way. They're already deep in. Brad is in Pontiac, and I think I've got time. I do. Brad, good afternoon and welcome to
9: the show. Hi, guy, how you doing? I'm good, sir. So um, I hate to say it in some ways, uh, your friend's daughter that died after one use, maybe that was a blessing. Uh, MY DAUGHTER, 13 YEARS, uh, STRUGGLED WITH HEROIN ADDICTION UNTIL SHE DIED oh. AT AGE 29. I'M SO um, SORRY. SO THERE'S there's SO MUCH TO SAY and, AND JUST LISTENING TO THESE PREVIOUS CALLERS, THERE'S SO MUCH MORE. BUT THE REASON WHY I CALLED, AS A FAMILY MEMBER WHO'S HAD TWO FAMILY MEMBERS uh, DIE FROM OPIOID ADDICTION, WHEN WE GO THROUGH COUNSELING, THE WHOLE ENABLING ISSUE is IS FRONT AND CENTER. And this is what breaks up marriages when you have two spouses that try to handle it in a different way. One spouse says, no, we're not going to buy that crack pipe, and the other spouse does. Okay, why does the federal government have a role in doing the exact opposite of what we learn in counseling? And if you have any counselors come on here, they're going to tell you that, and it's very hard. You know, how many times I told my daughter, if you leave the house and you're not going to a meeting, don't come back. And then mm-hmm. the next day, the wife would let her back. Brad, uh, it, let me
7: ask you, it, do, if if you could have had a safe injection site for your, your daughter, so that she, I mean, doesn't that buy you time against fentanyl no. and all the other things out there to, to, to hopefully no. win the war?
9: Really? No, it doesn't. Okay. There's one thing that is going to solve this, and it's I'm the user. The family can't do it the federal government can't do it count, because it all get, it all gets down to compliance if they don't want to they're not going to get clean and if the and if the resources are there if i don't provide the resources and they can go to the federal government to get it that's that's 10 times worse well no but you misunderstand the federal government is
7: regulating these sites the federal government has to get involved because otherwise they would be illegal so what the federal government is saying we'll remove the illegality but we're going to regulate it closely. And your, your opinion is hard earned and earned in the worst possible way, Brad. I appreciate your calling and sharing. I should point out that we heard from a, the very counselor who might've been treating someone like your daughter who says this buys them time to get that person into treatment so that they aren't a statistic. I'm so sorry for your loss. Anthony in Hillsdale, um, Anthony has some experience in this. And Anthony, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, guy. I appreciate your position on this. Um, Ten years ago, I battled with opioid addiction terribly. And if it wasn't for the VA having an excellent program, I wouldn't be a productive member of society to this day. Good for you. Now, uh, they put me on certain medication, and it helped me out, and it saved my life, to be honest. And those other callers, they just haven't been through <laughs> Any type of addiction because it's especially with opioids. And if they're at the point they're doing injections, it was probably 20 times worse than what I went through. But I sold my dad's guns, I mean, just uh, to get through yeah. two weeks. And it, it was just a terrible life. And I, I appreciate, and she's right. This is going to open up that door for the people that have been struggling week by week to get through. And it's going to help them get into treatment. It's going to help them introduce them to different medications that will help them get through this and become a productive member of society.
7: Okay, Anthony. And hold was- on one second, okay? Because I'm going to run. I'm going to run out of time here, and I want to make sure I ask you a very important question. When you were first dabbling in opioids, would it have mattered to you that there were these safe injection sites? Would you have seen that as a seal of approval or a destigmatizing or a normalizing of it? And would that have influenced your path in any way?
0: I would have seen it as a seal of approval that. Uh People are starting to wake up and actually try and take the addiction head on, to be honest with you. Because it isn't. It wouldn't compel you to become an addict. It wouldn't
7: it wouldn't make the the, it wouldn't have influenced your um, dabbling with the drug or your experimenting with the drug. You figure you were on that path anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was already on that path. So, yeah, that's nonsense. This is going to help people. It really will. Anthony,
7: congratulations on your sobriety. Uh, we we know what a hard fight that is, and uh, we're happy that you're among us, among the living, and and among the productive.
0: I appreciate that, guy. Thank you for your point of view.
4: Matt Stafford and the Rams will face off against Joe Burrow in the Cincinnati Bengals Sunday for the biggest sporting event of the year. Tickets to the game have become an expensive commodity, but local businessman and former employer of Magic Johnson, Gregory Eaton, has been to every single one since the beginning, and he talked to Mitch
2: Album. H- how much did you pay for that first ticket? Do you remember? $12. The
3: tickets were 12 8 and 6 Twelve. <laughs> oh, so you went
2: you went you went for bust, huh? You went for the good seats.
3: Oh yeah. That was a lot and of money back then.
2: Yeah, and by contrast, how much did you pay for this year's ticket?
3: Uh, 25 grand. Two tickets for 2500
2: piece. Wow. Wow, that's a bargain. Yeah, that's a good thing. Where are you yeah, sitting like in the last row?
3: New York. New York there was 3000 face value.
2: And uh, but you're not sitting on the 50-yard line anymore.
3: No, no, they got us, the, you know, the, the stadium has five stories. We're in number three, but we're in the first row. All
2: right. This is good. The yeah. thing that caught caught my eye was that you said that this may be, as I have said on the show frequently, this Super Bowl may be as close as a Lions fan like yourself <laughs> ever gets to seeing a Super Bowl win with Matthew Stafford, a quarterback.
3: I got a piece of paper in my pocket and my partner at uh, Karub, Joe Garcia, wrote. Because when Wayne Fonts became head coach, I said, now we're going to the Super Bowl. And Wayne and I laugh about it today, you know.
2: Well, mm-hmm. now you have a, a you have rooting interest in this. I mm-hmm. mean, for all the years that you went, you never really had, I wouldn't think, if you were a Lions fan, you really didn't care who won the game per se. D- is it different well, you know, now be- yes, because did, of because Matthew Stafford?
3: everybody on the team that I knew, like the first two was, was Herb Radley, you know. And then the number three was Bubba Smith, who, who worked for me when he was at Michigan State. There's always been some kind of player or coach, uh, you, know, uh, the Green, you know, the Green Bay Packers. And then you got the San Francisco 49ers and the Giants. So I've always had some reason to be able to go and cheer for somebody.
2: Did you count yeah. Tom Brady as a reason during all the years that he was in it? Because he played at Michigan? I,
3: <laughs> I tell you what, I'm cheering for him. I, I think he's done a brutal job. And he left on a good standards. He never bad left the Lions. I'm a 45-year ticket holder at the Lions. When the Super Bowl was at Ford Field, I had my suite. So I had my suite then. So you know, I, I love the Lions. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm I'm Detroit. My business is in Detroit. I'm like you. I'm WJR. You you know. We, we you work. You, you work. You, you
2: work at
0: WJR. I had no idea.
2: Oh, yes. What, sh- I do all the what shift the do you movie. have? <laughs> He's with Paul. Yeah, I come on overnight before my
3: brother.
2: Paul W. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. oh, you're on before Paul W. Okay. <laughs> yes. I thought that was the guy who talked about UFOs. You know,
7: uh, when it's it said and done, Mr. Dean, I wonder are you going to be known for going to every Super Bowl or are you going to be known for the guy who hired Magic Johnson to work for him for a dollar an hour? I just want to know which one do you think you will you
3: know,
2: be known I for? No, I $1.75. How long did he, he last? He
3: lasted, he lasted until he graduated. <laughs> but it I was more than that. When he got to college, it was more than that.
2: What was, was the when job? He
3: was in high school. Yeah, and what I'll be the... with him this week. I'll be with him tomorrow, you know.
2: What was what was the job?
3: Greg's janitorial service. I started in 1960. <laughs> we searched for dirt.
2: <laughs> and and so magic worked for you as a janitor? Yeah. Well, <laughs> wow.
9: Clean building. A little different uh, in the NIL era right now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: Yeah. I come in one day, and he had them 16 shoes or 15s on my desk. and leaning back. I said, imagine, what are you doing? I know Urban, because I always call him Urban. Urban, what are you doing? He says, I'm pretending I'm you. I'm in the big businessman. I've always knew that he would he would be bigger than basketball because he hmm. always wanted to be on some of his own and be in business.
4: They'll do it for Pod Suey for full episodes or anything else you might have missed. Go to the Greatvoice.com. See you next time.